This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. In the Christian life, there seems to be certain signals of decay, and it's shocking how easy decay can come into the Christian existence, because I don't think any of us desires it, and yet it so easily can creep in. And some of the uh, clear evidence points uh, that many of us are probably familiar with is a lack of passion for the Word of God, a lack of passion for prayer, obvious signs that something is missing, uh, and some of the uh, ones that I think are more telltale as that progresses is a lack of care for the lost, for those that don't know Christ. And you may theoretically or doctrinally know that we should share Jesus and we should share the gospel, but there's no impetus, there's no compulsion to do it. Uh, and another one is a lack of care or concern for the poor and the downtrodden and the weak. And when these signals begin to go off in our, in our Christianity, we need to heed them because we need to begin to return to first things. And when you are showing those signs, which I would say is just very easy. I don't know if it's easier in the American culture than previous cultures, but I can speak and say that in this culture, it's just extremely easy. In suburban USA, it's all the more easy because we're detached from these things. In suburban USA, we don't share life with a neighborhood the same way that previous cultures have. We don't see people. We oftentimes insulate ourselves. And so we choose a bubble life. And we, don't act, we know that there's issues out there, but we don't particularly care to know about them and, or to involve ourselves in them. That's someone else's matter. And if it was in my backyard, well, of course, I would deal with it. And that's why we don't have it in our backyard very purposely. So for us as Christians there is a need for us to allow our backyard to engage with the issues of life and the, the fallout of sin in a world around us. And the term that I have used for myself for many years is inconvenience. Inconvenience as a term is sort of an ugly term. We don't like it, and inconvenience is bad. And yet I would say there's a holy version of inconvenience. There's a positive spin on it or a divine use of the concept in our life that God intends. God intends, brace yourself for this, that you be inconvenienced. If you're not being inconvenienced, something's wrong with your Christianity. And yet what I just said smacks upside the face the very essence of the version or the mode of Christianity that many of us prefer which is an inconvenienced life. I'm sorry, a convenient life that is not inconvenienced. 
That's what we would prefer. We would prefer a life of comfort and ease the whole while holding to sound doctrine and going the distance in style and arriving in heaven with our faith in Christ intact. Can't can't we have that? Is there a way of living comfortable in this earth and making it the distance and ending up strong in the end before the throne of judgment where we stand in Christ spotless? If we can have that, that's what we crave, and yet that's a distortion of what the gospel calls us to. And so though, yes, in the human sense we crave it, you have to deny yourself. So whatever that element is in us, I basically want to stick my finger on it, and I need to do it for myself as well. I live in the same culture you do, and I have the same propensities. So it's not like I'm immune to it, like I stand here in some ivory tower of truth away from this plague known as selfishness. We all are burdened with the same weakness in this generation. We live in a culture that numbs us to the pains of others. And we oftentimes just nurse and lick our own wounds. And we fail to realize that there are those around us that have far greater wounds. Uh, Josh Kinnebrew gave me a, a podcast to listen to on the First World War. And all I can say, yesterday I was painting and listening to this thing. And I was so utterly disturbed with the pain that other people have gone through in previous generations. And I think my pain even is on a Richter scale. Suddenly I was like, okay, I better not, better not moan at all. I mean, I was so deeply moved by what these people in wartime, the loss that people at home faced and the loss of people in that battle front faced, the shock to their souls, the shock to their lives, and the numbness that is there for me, even in our American freedoms, to fail to remember that there are those that suffer and those that die, do I care? And so I want us to be reminded afresh. You see, November, maybe even late October, November and December, very early December, we were going through a theme of involvement as a body. How do we function together? And though it seems the last three times that I've given messages that I'm off topic, I'm actually uh, attempting to go into this year with a reset. I'd like to revisit that theme. But it's interesting because this theme, though it may seem off topic, is actually, this is what we do together, is... As Paul and Barnabas were being sent out, do you remember that famous line when the elders reminded them to not forget the poor? Where they are going, do not forget the poor. And what did uh, Paul say? It's the very thing we intended to do. And most of us, when we're going out in our life, we might need a reminder. Hey, hey, I know you're going out as a Christian into business, into uh, your, your family life, into whatever sphere of social interaction you have. Don't forget to pour yourself out. Don't just hold on to the good stuff that God has given you. Give it. And so that's what this is. This is a reminder message. Many of you have heard me talk on this, uh, I don't want to say ad nauseum, but this is a theme that I would say is a recurring theme over the past 10 years uh, in this ministry. And it's how this ministry started. I'd say this is a foundational idea and as I go through this, I'll give you a little history of even this ministry and this, this topic. Blessed inconvenience. A reminder that we are being made strong in order to be poured out. 
the life we desire. So that one side of us that if we were to be queried without being in our Sunday school format, you know when you're in Sunday school mode, you're ready to give the right answer. So if I were to say to you, so tell me what your life is about. Jesus, you all know what the right answer is. However, if I were to get you out of that mode into just you mode, where we can cut past the fog banks down to the very core of what motivates you, it is interesting. We all sort of are wired the same. We're humanity, and we have a propensity backwards, okay? You could find yourself firmly established in Christ. You have the right framework of thought this morning, but you still have a propensity towards Eunice. That's Y-O-U-ness. In other words, it's about you. And so as a result, every bit of your reasoning can easily be in that. Even church, how you appropriate church. How is this benefiting me? How do I feel about this? Is this my style? Is this the way I would prefer it? And so, so much of Christianity is the Holy Spirit touching that dimension of who we are and bringing us outside of that to say, I want you to consider what God thinks right now. Is he comfortable here? Are you, what are you doing for him? And so it's a, a totally different framework of thought. And then, not back to Eunice, but then back to the person next to you, the people around you. There are people hurting in this room. Are you even concerned about that? Are you willing to have the Holy Spirit work through you to burden you for someone else today and trust that he'll take care of your problems? Well, that's risky when you have problems. When you have weights in your own life to say, okay, God, I give up my own weights and I submit them to you, and I say, I, give me a wait for someone else. One of my birthday traditions now is to give my birthday gift away. Not, not my actual gift, like my son gives me a gift and I immediately go out and give it away. That's not what I mean. But if I were to receive a blessing from God, saying that God cares about birthdays, I think he does. Uh, and so I say, okay, God, so that if this was my day to receive a blessing, here's the first thing I want to do. This has become a tradition for quite a few years now. I want to I give that gift to someone else. And since my wife's birthday is right next to mine, I'm usually giving it to Leslie. And I want God to do something unique and powerful in Leslie's life. It's just a different way of looking at it. In other words, I trust that God will take care of me. And if my wife was blessed, any of you that are married, you know this. If your wife is blessed, hey, that's a blessing to you. (laughs) So as a result, to think that way of giving away the blessing that you have, that's actually the essence of how Christianity mechanically functions inside of us. So I'm going to touch something here in all of us. I'm going to read something out of scripture, but if any of you know Isaiah 58, which was read uh, earlier, so it depends on how good your memory is. Uh, Leslie and I memorized Isaiah 58 quite a few years ago. It's a very significant life, family, ministry, foundational verse, and I'm going to speak out of that today. But I'm going to trim out, I'm lifting out certain pieces of Isaiah 58. I'm going to put them back in, don't worry. But I'm lifting them out strategically so that you can see one side of this, and that is the blessing side. And so as I read this, I want you to recognize how your soul resonates. Like, yes, I crave that, I crave that, I crave that, I crave that. And then I'm going to show you where that blessing flows out of. In other words, there's something in there. This is an, it's an, what we could call an if then. If you do this, then this is what you get. I'm just giving you the then. This is what comes of something, but I'm not going to focus on that. I just want you to see this at first. 
Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay. I want that. That is what I crave in my spiritual existence. That sort of stability, that sort of closeness with Christ, that fruitfulness where my children carry on the flame of passion for Christ even further than I do. That's what I want as a father, as a leader, as a man of God. This is what I crave. But this is the then portion of God's statements. There is something that is in the if category that I lifted out so that you could clearly see the then that so resonates deeply. I mean, this is Eric and Leslie, you know, at the very foundations of our ministry of our family saying, okay, put your finger on that. Let's memorize that. That's what I want to go back to. We go back to Isaiah 58 all the time because there's been so many times when we have not seen this in our life and we come back to God and hold him to his word. It says, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You spoke. You said that if we pour out our life, you will care for us. Well, God, we're feeling rather thin right now. We, we're looking for those fat bones, as it is in uh, the, new, uh, the King James. Make, he'll make your bones fat. This one says, strengthen your bones. New King James. So I'm going to go through the list. Your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he shall say, here I am. Your light will dawn in the darkness. Your darkness will be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually. The Lord will satisfy your soul in drought. The Lord will strengthen your bones. You'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Your children will build the old waste places. You will raise up the foundations of many generations. You'll be called the repairer of the breach. You'll be called the restorer of streets to dwell in. You will delight yourself in the Lord. He will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth. He will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. Now, I don't know what's significant about the number 19, but what's interesting is when you lay out the ifs, there's 19 of them. So 19 is sort of an awkward number, but that's, that's what it is. There's 19 thens, but then these 19 thens flow out of 19 ifs. Context, context, context. So now I'm going to read it from the opposite vantage point. I'm going to show, show you not the blessings that flow out, but the ifs. I'm just going to compile all the ifs. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor that are cast out? When thou see the naked, that thou cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then, if you take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and the speaking of vanity, and if thou... Draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. Then, and you'll notice that every time it says then, I'm lifting out what it says. 
If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. I'm going to go back to this real quick, because when you get down to that bottom portion, it starts talking about the Sabbath day and the holy day of the Lord. And I'm going to give a sort of a New Testament clarifier here, because this is an incredible applicable scripture for us in the new covenant. And yet, so many things convert at the new covenant. For instance, the Old Testament concept of sacrifice. You know that we still sacrifice today as New Testament believers, but we don't go to Jerusalem with a lamb. We sa- the sacrifice of Christ is still there. You will make sacrifices in your life, but they are sacrifices oftentimes of obedience, of brokenness, of willingness, and those are precious in the sight of God. So it's not that sacrifice disappears, the word is converted into the New Testament. Temple. Well, there's still a temple in the New Covenant, in the New, temp- in the New Testament understanding, but it's very different than a temple built by human hands. It's the body. And Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple now? You see, we become the temple of the living God. The same is true, and I'm I'm not going to try and transgress certain people that hold very strongly to the idea of Sabbath being on the sixth day, and some people hold, hey, the Lord's day is the Sabbath. People argue about this and split. The church is split over this issue. I'm going to first and foremost say the Sabbath is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. How you honor that Sabbath, hey, you know, you have a conscience, and you follow Scripture, and you honor it, and God's, I'm sure, going to bless that. However, when we talk about honoring the day of the Lord... The day of the Lord is, is spoken of all throughout the Old Testament. The day of the Lord. So that's the Sabbath. Well, the day of the Lord. When the Lord will do things that will change all history. It talks about the coming of the Messiah. It matches him with a day. And you want to honor a day? You honor that day. That is the day above all days. So Sabbath is, hey, I'm not going to diminish it at all, but it is still a foreshadow, just like a temple is in the Old Testament. It's not like I'm saying, hey, let's bust down the temple, or hey, let's not make sacrifices. It's not the opposite. It's the fulfillment of something higher. Okay, so in this, the applicability of this, and first of all, I'm going to say this is filled, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He was the one that showcased what we're going to call the chosen fast, or the fast that God has chosen. The if prior to the then. If you loose the bands of wickedness, if you undo the heavy burdens, if you let the oppressed go free, if you break every yoke, if you deal thy bread to the hungry, if you bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, if when you see the naked that you cover him, if you hide not yourself from your own family, if you take away the yoke of oppression, if you take away the putting forth of the finger, if you take away the speaking of vanity, if you draw out your soul to the hungry and you satisfy the afflicted soul, then... If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and if you will honor him, listen, by not doing your own ways, by not finding your own pleasure, nor by speaking your own words. The seeming contradiction. Are we saved by works or by grace? And this is somewhat of a side topic just because I don't want you to be distracted. So whenever we talk about the doing side of Christianity, it gets us into some weedy territory. Because probably many of us in here hold very firmly to the fact that it's not the works of a Christian that actually garner us salvation. 
We do not gain heaven by our good deeds. We gain heaven by his good deed. His life lived is our great secret access to the heavenly realms. And when we, in faith, turn from our own works unto his working, his doing, what he has accomplished, we find his working clothes us. And so when we enter into the throne room of grace, what God sees is his perfect life, not our imperfect one. That's our great secret. However, it does not mean the exclusion of actually doing good things in this body. So what we see is that how we gain access to those heavenly realms, how we gain access under that throne room of grace is his doing. But when we gain access to that heavenly uh, throne room of grace, he moves into this body. Yeah, the one that does good works moves in. And what does he do through these hands? What does he do through this mouth? What does he do through this body known as the body of Christ? He does things that showcase the behavior of heaven. And that is the fruit that is supposed to come out of our life. And if we do not allow it to come out of our life, we end up petrifying, decaying in our spiritual condition. God strengthens us and gives us his life so that we can give life. He forgives us so that we can forgive others. He loves us so that we can love. He shows kindness to us so that we can give kindness. In other words, he rescues us so that we can be rescuing agents. He washes our feet so that we can go and wash others' feet. You see, the moment we begin to close off that channel, that flow, is the moment we begin to deteriorate. It's actually God's love that would say, no, let it out. No, give it. But the reason we give it isn't to be saved from hell. The reason we give it is to maintain a constancy of connectivity, a love relationship with Christ. To give love to others actually strengthens our relationship with him. And it builds and changes the world around us and builds what we know as the body of Christ. In other words, this is the flow of how a Christian functions. So though at first it might seem like a contradiction, it's like, whoa, you're supposed to loose bands of wickedness? You're supposed to help naked people be clothed? This sounds like works, works, works. I know what it sounds like at first. However, if all you do is you wake up in the morning, it's like, God, I have to get on your good side. So what does it say in Isaiah 58? Mm-hmm, you're going to be a mess. And so Isaiah 58 in the gospel understanding needs to flow out of Christ. This is actually his work. This is what he did for us. He wants to move in and now do this work through us. So the work we do for Jesus is not what saves us. Jesus saves us. It's his rescue work that delivers our souls. The work we do for Jesus is the outflow of a life transformed and rescued by Jesus Christ. It is the outward evidence of a life indwelled by the great rescuer himself. If the great rescuer enters into your body, what's he going to do? He's going to do great rescue work. And that's an evidence of what God has done to change us. And so that's just more of a clarification because as we move forward in this, I don't want you to stumble in the weeds of legalism. And that's just so easy to do because we have a propensity to be hypersensitive to this whole works idea. And yet the work of the Holy Spirit is different than the work of man trying to appease God. So I could work in my own self-effort and say, God, are you happy with me? He's like, hey, that stinks in heaven. It's not what you do, Eric. I need to repent of my own work, step into Christ's work, and allow the Holy Spirit now to work. I could do the same thing, but I could do it two different ways. I could do it out of Eric's muscle, Eric's strength, Eric's determination, and it's not pleasing in heaven. 
or I could leave Eric's way of doing it, and I could allow the Holy Spirit to enter into Eric and do that work through me. Same thing, I'm still helping the poor, but one is born of the Holy Spirit, and that is pleasing to God. This is a really fun, funny word. Some. I did actually say a word there. Some. I, I, it's just a really hard one. I like words with a little more meat to them. This one doesn't have any phonetical meat. It's like some. So here's one of the best ways to describe it. Have you ever seen someone, uh, usually like a mom, when she's looking at her kids and she goes, that's what it's like, some. <laughs> some. Okay, that's actually, and that's a pretty good description of what it means. Okay, it means to shut the mouth. Some. To choose to not open and partake, actually, typically used in scripture as to fast. Isn't that just an interesting statement? This is the chosen some that God has called us to. That's what, that's what it is. This is the closing of the mouth that God has called. Because the Jews thought it just meant, oh, woe is me, I have to go without, I have to you know, wear sackcloth, and oh, I can't eat food and all these, and God says, whoa, you're missing actually the chosen version of this. And here's, I'm going to bring you into a depth on this, because many of you have probably read this. I mean, I studied fasting, various things. I'm not trying to teach on fasting. I'm teaching on some. You see, there are certain things. To close the mouth, this is where we are getting most of our pleasure through. This is the way we, have you ever had it where, especially over the holidays, this is a dangerous season, so you, that, you notice how I waited until after the holidays to teach some But to close your mouth and to sacrifice partaking of something that you really crave for a higher purpose is really difficult, okay? There's a form of doing this that is higher than any form that maybe we in our initial sense of hearing the concept of fasting understand. And that's what I want to focus on today because fasting plays a significant role in our prayer life. This is bigger. This is something that you practice every day. This isn't just a removal of food from your your daily activities. This is functioning in Christ. Okay, so see if I can walk you through this. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. I read this last week. Now in the New Testament, we understand this is Jesus. This is a very clear messianic statement and is clearly stated in the New Testament as being the Christ. Okay, so we're in the context talking about Jesus. This was the Lord's doing. It is, the mar- it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. He will rejo- we will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I said last week, just to bring us up to speed with what I covered last week, is this is the day the Lord has made. Now, most of us have grown up just hearing that part of it, and so as a result, we think, because my mom used to always say that. She would sing a song, come into my room and sing, uh, you know, turn on the lights, and I was like, oh, and she's like, hey isn't it beautiful? This is the day the Lord has made. She's right. This present tense day, January 6, 2019, is the day the Lord has made. That is accurate. However, there's a bigger understanding of capital D day. And that is, this is the day. This is the day that Christ, look at this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus has done something. He has accomplished something. In one singular day, he removed the iniquity of the land. He has done it. It is finished. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the Lord's doing. He did this. 
and we will rejoice and be glad in it. So when you understand the day of the Lord, okay, so the Lord's day in the New Testament, we understand Sunday, you know, because this is, John, it says, was in the, in the spirit on the Lord's day. And so it's the first day of the week. It's the day of resurrection. And so as the, the day of resurrection, the day of, uh, I don't know, it was Pentecost was the first day of the week. So what we have is we have these marvelous moments that are marked in the history of the church as being the Lord's day. And yet what are all of those combined? This is the work of Christ. And so the Lord's day is the work of Christ. And what do you need to find rest in? What is your Sabbath? The work of Christ. It's the Lord's day. But the Lord's day just isn't merely a day of the week. Are you going to hop out of the Lord's day on Monday? In other words, you rejoice and are glad in this day every day. And this is how we as a Christian live. And so remember, this is a part of Isaiah 58, which is the chosen tzum. The chosen tzum is basically the Lord's day. This is what he has done. Every single thing you see in that list is what he accomplished. This is what he did. Rejoicing and being glad in the Lord's day. Purposely choosing to be glad in God's way of doing things. You know that what Christ did on the Lord's day, the Lord's doing, this doesn't look very good. Look up at that cross. Uh, every single one of us could come up with a better way of doing this. You don't need to lay down your life. You don't need to suffer and die. I mean, you could put more clothes on. You could, you know, bring a legion of angels down from heaven and knock out all these Romans. What do they think they're doing? Don't they know who they're messing with? This is the Lord's doing. For him to be rejected, despised, scourged, this is the Lord's doing. You see, for us... We don't understand what it means to go silent as a lamb unto slaughter. Tzum. What did Jesus do? Tzum. It was a fast. He could have opened his mouth, but he did precisely what the Father was asking of him. And it showcased heaven. The very behavior of the Father was revealed in and through the Son. So what is taking place is an incredible picture of some. So purposely choosing to be glad in God's way of doing things. You ever uh, thought of rejoicing in the Lord in the day that he's made? And the fact that, yes, I accept the way God does things. What does that mean for you? Pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow me. Wait, 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 wait. Where are you going? We already see where he went. So are you willing to follow me? Well, God, is there another way of doing this? There's one way. There's one way. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of laying down your life. Jesus had all strength, and what did he do with it? He gave it to us. You've been given strength. What are you doing with it? See, the American model is to build a barn and stick it in there. The Christ model is to not build the barn, but to give it. Ah, that violates our American capitalism. In other words, that isn't the way it is. I'm not promoting socialism, by the way. I'm promoting Jesus. You see, this is what Jesus did. This is a model for us. Purposely choosing to be glad in God's way of doing things. You're going to rejoice in the day of the Lord? This is the Lord's doing. This is the way he does things. 
Embracing inconvenience. Can you think of a more inconvenient thing than to be the creator of the heavens and the earth, the king of all, and taking on human skin? And to go through what he went through. That is not just mildly inconvenient. Think about what you were being asked of by the Holy Spirit and then contrast it with what Christ went through to give his life to you. Electing a more difficult pattern. If you had two patterns in life, one was of ease, one was of difficulty, the ease meant that you could grow fat and happy, though you would never produce fruit and never actually showcase the life of Christ and you would grow uh, gnarled and petrified in your spiritual existence, but hey, you could have comfort while you're doing it. Or this one, the one that is more difficult, could find the robust closeness and intimacy with the Most High God, could produce abundant fruit that would change the earth in the course of history. Tell me more about this one. Well, it's comfortable. Okay, tell me more about this one. It's very uncomfortable. What what do you get out of this? Nothing. Death. What do you get out of this one? Abundant life. Ah, why does it have to be that way? Are you willing to accept God on his terms? If you want the fullness of God, you need to follow his pattern. And his pattern involves something known as tsum. Closing your mouth to things you would otherwise eat. That you're willing to turn away from them and say, no. I am going to partake of God's things, not the world's. Oh, this is really hard. And the American diet and our understanding of Christianity does not understand this. And as a result, we've created a weird and funky version of Christianity today, which is about our best life now, instead of Christ's life in us now, leading us to crosses, leading us to pour out our life, leading us to serve, leading us to give up everything. Very different. Selecting a more challenging way. Now, I I have a little italicized line on the bottom. By fasting Isaiah 58 style. So in other words, I'm not going to tell you to fast just in a normal sense, like not eating for the day, even though I'm not against it. But I am going to commission you to fast Isaiah 58 style. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Listen to 17, 18, and 19 in our previous list. These are the ifs. So if you do this, and this is honoring the Lord's day, this is honoring the Sabbath, if you will keep my Sabbath holy, if you will keep that Lord's day holy, set apart in your existence, that you would recognize that this is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in this model, in this pattern. Let's live in this. By not doing your own ways, by not finding your own pleasure, nor by speaking your own words. Welcome to Christianity. This is the essence of it. In other words, in the first man, your first natural state, you are under condemnation. And in your own works of righteousness, you could try and appease God, but they can never appease God. So what Christ says is you must repent. You must give up your own way of doing and enter into my way. When you enter into Christ, you are saved by his working. And now you rest in that, but you actually elect to follow his pattern. His pattern is one of some. And it is to not do your own ways. Do you know that Christ modeled this? He did not do his own ways. I know that sounds weird because he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. 
What do you mean he didn't do his own ways? He did not find his own pleasure. You know that a Christian, that doesn't mean the absence of pleasure at all. That's the common misnomer. It doesn't mean the absence of pleasure. As far as I'm concerned, Christians have far greater pleasure than anyone in the world. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you know where you sit? What's your position? Where's he? He's at the right hand of the Father. In Christ, sitting at the right hand of the Father, we're seated in heavenly places where pleasures are forevermore. In other words, we're not cut off from pleasure. It's just that we are closing our mouth to earthly pleasure so that we can partake of something greater. Nor by speaking your own words. By the way, this is Christ. This is the model. This is the pattern that we enter into. Jesus modeled this fast, this tzum. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is in Isaiah 53, 750 years before the cross. The Messiah, when he comes, will prove the sum. This is right before Isaiah 58. In other words, the one that is coming, he will close his mouth. He will not open it. This is one of the ways that you will know he is from me. He will zoom. For I have come down from heaven, says Jesus, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He fasted his own will so that he could do the will that is greater. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. He fasted his own teaching. It comes from the one who sent me. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. This is God Almighty humbling himself, limiting himself to show us how this fast works. It's like, hey guys, I could call a legion of angels down. Sure, I'm God. But I'm going to fast that so that I could accomplish God's errands. You see, what God is desiring to do is so much better than what we can do in our own strength, but we need to fast our own strength to enter in to allow his strength to function. We must fast our own wisdom, our own way, our own rights, so that we can allow his wisdom to come forth, his way to burst forth. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I mean, it's truly remarkable that God Almighty in human flesh modeled a fast. That he literally closed his mouth to any way that he would do it of his own accord and said, Father, you take this body and you do with it as you see fit. Christianity. This is a summary. You could always give a different form of a summary for Christianity. This is my summary for today. Harnessed for inconvenience. God... Here you go. Take my life, take my body, and harness it. Hold me. Because if I am on my own with my own opinions, my own desires leading the way, I would never choose this narrow path. You know what narrow means? In scripture, it means a way of difficulty and compression. Few are those who find it, it says in scripture. You see, no one really is attracted to a narrow way. They like the broad way. And so as a result... 
we tend to, if listening to our own instincts, if allowing our own mouth to yap internally, where will we go? We'll go Broadway. Which is why we must close our mouth and fast our own opinion, our own desires, and we must heed his. This is the fast that he has chosen. Job chapter 29. I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind and feet was eye to the lame. I was a father to the poor and the cause which I knew not I searched out. And I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. I really like uh, this passage of scripture. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of everything he did. Now it's talking about Job. It's actually, you know, Job who God was bragging about. Well, you can see why God bragged about Job. However, this is first and foremost a picture of the one who literally lives as an outpoured life. The Job 29 report card. Let's look at 10 heroic actions of the Christian. So I just want you to immediately just look at this, not for the sake of condemnation, but as reminder to invigorate your soul to remind you what it is we're here for. How we allow the spirit of life to flow through us. I delivered the poor that cried. Most of us don't even allow ourselves to hear the poor crying, let alone deliver them. I delivered the fatherless. I delivered him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor. The cause which I knew not, I searched out. You see, most of us, it's like, hey, if it comes to my door, then I'll deal with it. If someone's hungry and they're knocking on your door, well, you'll probably give them food. Odds are. However, if they're not coming to your door, odds are you will never give them food. Why? Because you're not going out and finding them. The cause which I knew not, I searched out. That's a picture of Jesus, isn't it? He came to seek and save that which was lost. Not to just wait for the lost to come to him, but to seek it out. To find it and then to rescue it. You see, this model that we're stepping into, this fast that I'm describing, is one of fasting your own way of doing things, your own desires. Because everything I'm saying violates a certain aspect of who you are. And that aspect of who you are is actually not your friend. Selfishness is not going to get you anywhere. God, how can I have it all, have my cake and eat it too? God says, if you really want that cake, you sort of need to give it up. What? That sounds backwards. Sounds contrary. It's like, you want life? Give up your life. What? That's how you gain in the kingdom of heaven. You must fast the things that the devil is sticking in front of you. You say, no, you need to eat this. No. I am going to pass on that, close my mouth to that, enter into Christ and open my mouth to him. You see, we still feast, we still eat, but we're eating something different than what the world is setting before us, which is, which is a personal agenda, a self-centered ideology. I want life on my terms, my way, with all my comforts intact. And God says, will you give that up? Oh. And we repent of such thinking and enter into what we could call the day of the Lord. We enter into Christ. We enter into his working. We enter into his ways. 
I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. So Matthew 25, I wish I could go through the whole passage in Matthew 25. It's judgment day. Sheep, goats. uh, Goats separated out to the left. Sheep to his right. I mean, this is an intense thing. And what he says to the goats doesn't sound good. And all I can say is every time I read this, I think, God, I don't want to be a goat. And what's hard about this is everything about it is doing. It's action. And so many of us have a hypersensitivity to action in the Christian life for fear of legalism that we fail to recognize that this is the word of God. And there's two forms of action. Self-action to try and be right with God and action that flows out of the life of Christ with the indwelling spirit moving. And if the Holy Spirit, truly the grand rescuer of all souls, is pulsating in your life, what are you going to do? You're not going to do nothing. You're going to act. You're going to be animated by that spirit. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. This is speaking to the sheep. This is what they did. And what's interesting, it's always fascinated me, is the sheep said, when? When, when? when did we do that? Have you ever noticed that there's Like when you first learn to drive, you're very conscious about your driving, especially when your mom is in the passenger seat and she's going, no, 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 and her foot's trying to push an imaginary brake into the floor. You're very conscious about everything when you're going in in that, uh, you know, lurching down the street uh, moments, if any of you have ever gone through that. You're very conscious about what's taking place. And yet as you become familiar with driving a car, you ever had it where you drive across the country and you, you're thinking, did I just drive across the country? I can't remember anything about it. I just was like driving. It's like unconscious consciousness, weird and freaky. <laughs> Welcome to sheep life. You don't wake up in the morning saying, I'm going to help poor people. You just do. In other words, you're not doing it because you have to do it because it's a rule in your life. You've been changed. Your very nature is now outward. So therefore, when someone needs it, you do it. and You don't ponder it and write it down on a list and say, check. That's when you're hyper-conscientious about trying to live rightly. But when you are just heeding the way of God, delighting in Christ and doing what he would desire you to do, love flows out of you and you don't even know it. Someone comes up to you a year later and says, oh, when you did this for me, it changed my life. Thinking, when? When did I do that? I don't remember doing that. Well, praise God. And you're thinking, I think they're mixing me up with someone. That's a good sign. It's sheep thinking. For I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. The Matthew 25 report card. Grade yourself before the judgment seat. The hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. What we have a tendency to do is feel guilty right about now. It's like, wow, I am so insensitive. This is what we call a signal. Okay, If you begin to recognize a callous in your soul, repent. It's that simple. In other words, if you begin to realize, it's like, whoa, 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 what's going on with me? I'm becoming Americanized again. I'm starting to just think about my comforts. Repent and just cherish, delight yourself in the day of the Lord again. Delight yourself in his way of doing this. God, 
I want to be your channel. Take this, use it, flow through it. I want you to love the world in and through me. And then even today, start doing it. In other words, at first it might be very conscientious where you know what's going on and it's like, okay, I'm changing this pattern. However, you need to then exercise it. Do it. Just allow God to begin to work in and through you. Depraved indifference. So our video that we made, our little short film called Depraved Indifference, has gone all over the world. I mean, it's, it's had a, a very significant impact. It all started back uh, when Hudson would have been four. So we're talking 10 years ago that this story unfolded. But I was on, the, on a phone call. Leslie and I were really being stirred in regards to the, the poor, the orphan, the widow. Every day I would come home and Leslie would spend the day studying all the things that up to that point we didn't want to know. So I'd come home and she'd tell me about uh, a Down syndrome kid that's begging on the streets in Mexico City. And we would both just sort of choke up together. It's like, no, just keep reading. Keep reading. I want to know. I've desensitized myself to it and I've closed my eyes to this for so long. I want to hear it. And at that time, Jackie Pollinger, we'd listen to some audio uh, of Jackie Pollinger who was in the walled city of Hong Kong for like 45 years. Such a bad place that even the police wouldn't go. And she made a statement. She said, don't ever think that if you ever hear a news uh, piece that you're not the only one on earth to hear it and that God wants you to be the answer to it. Well, that makes you want to stay away from news pieces right there. And so that's what I saw that instinct, that bubble wrap instinct for myself. So I said, no, I want to hear the news pieces. God, help me. Help me. I, I just feel so selfish. I mean, why do I, I'm just thinking about, oh, that, that's going to compromise it. Oh, it's going to make it. How am I going to pay for that if I do this? All these thoughts. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. We're not seeking first that. We're seeking first, well, how am I going to do that? We want the human wisdom before we ever become inconvenienced. Well, when my house has this in order, then I'll do this. Well, when I have this in order, then. We have a funny if-then system that's very different than Isaiah 58. You see, God says, you act I'll do. Well, wait a minute. How about you do, then I'll act? That's not the kingdom of heaven. You repent, believe, I save. You see, he's already done the work. But now to partake of this grand treasure, we need to act. There is something we need to be willing to do, which is let go, give up. Close our mouth to the things that we are chewing on. So in this story, uh, I, it was one of those bold moments. Leslie had found an orphanage in Liberia that uh, she had come across. And I don't know, we, she'd been in communication. I don't know, it was email communication. So we'd set up a phone call for me to talk with uh, the lady that ran it. And I, I just remember that phone call. One thing I remember is her describing, we need help out here. And that was what Leslie and I were saying. God, what do you want us to do? We need to do something. We just don't know what it is. So what is it? And so I'm talking with this lady. She says, we just need help. We have so many orphans over here, and yet we have no space for them, and we don't have enough workers for them. And she said, we, we came out here, and we had room in our house for 14 kids. We thought that was a lot. That was filled in the first week, and now we have 27, and we have to turn every single kid away. And she said, there's a four-year-old sitting on the side of the road that I saw today, and he has nothing 
He has no food. He has no parents. He has nothing. He's just starving to death out there. And I don't know what to do because I have no space for him, no resource anymore. I don't have enough hands and feet to handle the issue. And I was moved, right? In the phone call, I'm like, wow, that is just terrible. Here's what struck me. I get off that phone and I go back to my normal daily work. And I forget about it. That night, I'm sleeping and I wake up and God has a question sitting in front of me. I mean, it's just weird. Woke up and it's like so clear this boy on the side of the road in Liberia is in front of me. Eric, what if that was Hudson? Hudson was four. And it's like somehow that was the language my soul needed. Well, if that was, if that was Hudson, if my son is on the other side of the world, sitting on the side of the road, disoriented, not having a clue what's going on, no parents, no food. How does a dad feel? I mean, I, I, I don't know if you have to be a dad. I could say, how does a mom feel? That might even be more fierce. I don't know. However, what you do is you act. That's all I can say. If that's the case then I move into action mode without anyone prodding me. I don't need to read a scripture about doing something. I rise up. I do. What do I do? Try and figure out a way to get over there. Communicate with someone over there maybe who can help him. I try and figure out where exactly he is. If I can't make it, what do I do? I call on someone who can. So the almighty Christ has ascended. His hands and his feet are up there. So what does he do? He says, you're my hands, you're my feet, you're my body. I have a son over in Liberia sitting on the side of the road. This is what God said to me. Listen to this. This is what so moved and changed my life. Eric, that's my Hudson. My Hudson, Eric, is on the side of the road in Liberia, and I'm calling on you. That's where it started. Depraved indifference is actually a legal term that is a, it's like a charge of murder against someone. Here's how it works. It's like if you're in a park and there's a lake out there and someone's drowning out in the lake and you have the capacity to actually go out and rescue them and you just watch them drown, it's called depraved indifference and it's a charge of murder against you. If you know someone's drowning out there and you do nothing, it's murder. I don't even like the thought of it, to be honest, because... The ramifications of swallowing that are so extreme to our lives, especially our suburban lives. And yet, the reason I'm bringing it up is because this sort of stirring, I think, is necessary for us as the body of Christ to recognize this life is not supposed to be our own. Yes, you have time on this earth. You have a life. But it is not supposed to be spent eating the things of this earth. You're supposed to zoom. You're supposed to fast the things that you would naturally crave and say, God, what do you want me to feed on? What do you want to use this body for? That is what I will do. Open your mouth for the speechless. Close your mouth, zoom, for yourself. Open your mouth for the speechless. In the cause of all who are appointed to die, Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. The three stations of transformation. So what I'll oftentimes show in, in the basic formation of how Christianity works, the three stations of transformation. So you're in a prison cell. You have chains on. 
It's like a prison camp. You're being whipped, being called all sorts of names, kicked. And, you know, they have a steel-toed boot. really hurts. Your ribs are broken. You're in no shape to do anything. Someone could come to you and give you a command, change the world. Give up your life. You don't have a life to give. You're, you're a dead man walking or a dead man sitting in a prison cell. However, who enters that prison cell but your rescuer, Jesus Christ? He breaks the chains that bind you. He brings wholeness and health to your existence. And he lifts you out of that prison cell and that prison camp rescues you, delivers you. Where? Where does he put you? Where does he take you? He brings you to boot camp. See, many of us think it's some kind of island in the Pacific where you sit under a palm tree and food just drops into your mouth. And uh, I don't know, that doesn't sound good. That'd be a coconut in that situation. So that might not be the best. You're under some other kind of tree where fruit could fall into your mouth. And it's ease. It's comfort. This is what he set us free to, isn't it? Well, that's the American gospel. But that's not the gospel. You see, we're in a prison camp with no hope other than judgment. We have nothing but pain to look forward to forever and always. But we have been rescued from it and brought where? We've been brought to a training camp, to boot camp, to be built into soldiers, to be built into rescuers. To do what? Get this. To go back in to prison camps and set people free. We are the hands and the feet. We can't save, but we are the vehicle through which God does his work. We're the mouths that are supposed to be speaking. These are the hands that he has chosen to use. These are the feet that are supposed to move and act. This is the heart that's supposed to beat. This is the body of Christ. And if that body is not doing that work, what's happening to the lowly, the poor, the weak, the least, and the lost? Well, you can fill in the blank. There'll be some government program eventually that will try and caretake for them instead of the church. You see, we are God's method. So three stations of transformation, the prison camp to the boot camp, to the prison camp again. You know, and if you were to ponder that just a little, I mean, it sounds noble and sort of poetic on the screen. It's a pretty big deal when you think about it. It's like, oh, I'm not going back there. Well, you don't go back there as a prisoner. You go back there as a free man, deliberately choosing to enter into dark territory, messy territory, but this time untouched by that mess. This time ready to cleanse that mess off of people. This time ready to break chains of oppression, bonds of wickedness, because you have the authority of the great rescuer himself. That is Christianity. Christianity is an action. It's a doing. The entire Hebrew language and the entire Greek language is based on verbs. Action. The word of God is a grand verb. You don't just hear it and sit. You are not just a hearer, but a doer of the word. Being made strong to be poured out. Why are you given the strength that you have? Why are you being trained? What's the good of this church thing? It's to be strengthened. We come together, we gather together, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week to be strengthened. To do what? To just be strong? To give strength. We are being made strong to pour out. The clogged pipeline of grace. There's a pipeline. You've heard me say this many times. It's it's strange because some of you in your, your mental sense can't figure out how you live with a pipeline next to you. But it's a pipeline that connects to the heavenly realms. And it's it's pressurized with the life of God. 
the grace of God, the joy of God, the kindness of God. Everything that God is is made available to you. There's a gate valve on it. And so when we first come to Christ, we need to seek whatever it takes, that Holy Spirit, to enter in and live within us. Because how, I mean, what's the good of having a pipeline if you're not allowing all this, the good stuff to come into this body and then to flow out? You see, if it just comes in and doesn't go anywhere, that's, that's a misuse of this pipeline. You've been given all of this, but if you clog it, if you only gain it for you, well, at least I know I'm fine. At least I can rest secure tonight that I'm going to heaven. And you don't give it, you actually are closing the gate valve. You see, if you don't allow it to come through, you close off that grace. You ever heard the statement that Christ forgives you, but if you don't forgive others, he can't forgive you? It sounds really strange. Like, how does that work? It's because what you're doing is he gives you forgiveness, but if you don't allow it to come through, it closes off that grace. And now you're cut off from the grace that God desires to give you. It's not even just a form of punishment. It's just a form of reality. It's like, hey, this isn't how it works. I have given you that so that you can give it. If you just hold on to it with selfishness, you're actually doing the opposite of what my spirit is desiring to do. The lifeguard. You know, when you hear lifeguard, you think of someone sitting on a a chair over a pool, swinging their uh, light. Didn't you ever want to do that? If any of you weren't a lifeguard, you always dreamed of being able to sit there all bronzed all summer long and swing your whistle. Uh, I don't even think they're actually focused on anything. They're just thinking, I wonder if I look good right now. It's the wrong thing to ever drown in front of a lifeguard. Uh, The lifeguard. But this is a better version of lifeguard, okay? This is actually the real version of lifeguard. They stole the term and used it for those guys swinging their whistles, okay? This is a body of select troops whose duty is to defend the person of a prince or other singularly valuable persons. Isn't that just a really great concept? They're the lifeguard. And so if there's a young prince like royalty, there'd be a guard around there that would give up their life. Sort of like secret service. They would give up their life. They would take the bullet to preserve the, the royal prince. You know what God says? Let me tell you who the royalty is. It's the weak. It's the downtrodden. It's the poor. It's the hungry. It's the naked. It's the foreigner in your land. It's the widow, the orphan. I want you to be willing to lay down your life as a lifeguard to preserve them. It's a select troop. It's known as the Church of Jesus Christ. And we are willing to give up our life for God's royalty. It's an amazing expenditure. It's like, whoa, 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 God. I could do so much in this earth. I'm well educated. I have, you know, position and, and authority and things. If I just like pour out my life for wait a minute, wait a minute, what's the Christ model? King of all kings comes to this earth, humbles himself, lays down his life. What a waste. Was it a waste? And neither will it be a waste when you become willing to do it. God doesn't waste the blood of his saints. He doesn't waste one drop of who we are and what he invests in us. But he does ask us to behave as he would, to do what he would do, to tsum to close our mouth to our own enticements, to the enticements of this world, and open our mouth wide for the speechless. Close our mouth. Close our way of doing things off so that we can open up to his way. This is the fast that God has chosen. The first sermon on this stage wasn't given by me. It was given by Hudson. As legend has it, 
Hudson gets up here because I actually wasn't here. It really stinks. Uh, but a- as the story goes, uh, there were about uh, three people in the audience uh, that day. And, and I think Annie Weshy said, uh, was the one that instigated. She goes, Hudson, did you want to give, because he was up here on the stage, did you want to give a sermon like your dad gives? And he nodded. And then he paced around like daddy paces <laughs> for about five minutes and then comes up to the front and they all sat there and he was ready to give his sermon. And he said, did you know that God wants us to help the orphan? That's the very first sermon on the stage before I ever preached here. My very first sermon here was called The Mighty Intercessor, which is about standing in the gap for the weak. That just is a coincidence. It wasn't all knit together like that, but this is how this church started. This church started with a, a call saying, do you know? Did you not know this, that God desires us to be poured out for the weak? Did you not know that he makes you strong so that you can stand in the gap for those that can't fight for themselves, so that you can be a mouth for those that can't speak? Did we not know this? Let us as a church be built strong so that we can be poured out. You know what kind of person I am. This is uh, a blog written uh, in 2008. My three-year-old little boy, Hudson, is at the ripe age for cute quotes. But what's fun is he's moving beyond the cute comments oriented around just the basic structure and facts about life. You know, like, Daddy, did you know that the sun doesn't snore when it sleeps? And he's entering philosophical territory where he's beginning to comment on right and wrong, equity and justice, mercy, and the overall perceived value of life. Listen to the one he offered on Tuesday of this last week. He was dead serious walking through the grocery store and he stated matter-of-factly, you know what kind of person I am? I'm the kind of person who sees owies and fixes them. Then it was absolutely adorable to watch him become a doctor, build a doctor's office out of his bedroom and set our little one-and-a-half-year-old girl Harper on the floor for a checkup. He was convinced she had an owie on her head and that needed fixing. And she wasn't so sure he was correct. I keep coming back to Hudson's grocery store announcement. You know what kind of person I am? I'm the kind of person who sees owies and fixes them. My little boy has begun to discern between three very distinct sorts of people. There are people that see owies and fix them. There are people that see owies and don't fix them. And there are people that for some reason just can't see other people's owies and as a result don't fix them. The question that keeps dancing through my head is, dear Lord, of which sort am I? I'm happy to say that there are times that I see an owie, and like the Good Samaritan man, I actively respond to fix it. However, I must admit there have also been times when I've seen the owie and kept walking. I'm ashamed to say it, but it's true. And in the past couple years, in awakening to so many of the major owies that countless millions around the world are suffering from, I realize that in many ways I've also proven blind to owies, and as a result have done nothing to help fix them. In the book of Job, chapter 29, Job is describing himself, and his description is rather amazing. In fact, I could almost say that in essence he is saying, you know what kind of person I am? I'm the kind of person who sees an owie and fixes it. Listen to Job. I was eyes to the blind and feet was eye to the lame. I was father to the poor and the cause which I knew not I searched out. And I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. That also sounds like someone else I know fairly well, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sees every owie, and he has predetermined to comfort all of us that ache and fix whatever it is that ails our bodies and souls. Jesus never leaves an owie behind, and neither should we. If we are to carry his name and represent his manner and method in this world, then owies must become our business. We must stand up in our homes, our businesses, our churches, and our neighborhoods today and shout, you know what kind of person I am? And then by the grace and empowerment of our God, demonstrate the answer in living color before them all. The results of God governed inconvenience. 
There's inconvenience that isn't God-governed, and it's torture. But when you experience inconvenience that is yielded to, says, God, my answer is yes. I have had a lot of inconvenience in my life because of what I've said yes to. And you could ask me right now, Eric, so would you encourage us to follow? Yes. Though it has removed me from certain things that would have made life tremendously easier, every step of obedience that I have yielded to, though it has hindered me from being able to participate over here, though it has closed my mouth on quite a few things that would have been wonderful. I remember telling all the students at Ellerslie for quite a few years, it's like, I haven't played one game of ultimate Frisbee. I haven't played one game of football, all my, or, or of basketball. All my kids are young. If I do that, I'm saying no to this. So it's like, close my mouth to ultimate Frisbee. And yes, it's just needed. In life, you have to choose something higher. And yes, in choosing that inconvenience, I've had to close my mouth to even things that are fine. They're not immoral, but there was something that I had to say yes to that forced a difficulty in my life that at times the devil would say, you brought it on. You chose that. No, I said yes to God. He chose it. Therefore, he will give grace for it. So yes, I would say you should do it too. The results of God-governed inconvenience then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So as we close, and we're going to enter into a time of communion, which I can't think of a better way to finish something like this than to yield ourselves to Christ's work. Because when I, when I visually see the taking of the bread and the, and the juice, it's saying, God, I'm willing to be your body, and I'm willing to be broken and spilled out, just as you are. It's a covenant meal. Just like a marriage, you're exchanging. What are you exchanging? My life for his. I'm willing to give up my way, my feasting, to now enter into his way and what he wants me to open my mouth to. And when you do that, is it risky? Well, if you, if you think that stock in God Almighty is risky stock, then you could say it that way. It's risky to your old man and your old ways of doing things. It's the surest investment you could ever give yourself to. He will take care of you. He will fulfill his word in your life. Give that life up, that Americanism up, and take on Christianity, Jesus, the fullness of the one who is all in all. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. 
Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.